For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Dear Father, we thank you for your uh, amazing words. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your Son to pay the price for us. We thank you especially today, and just, just open our eyes, Lord, to the size of this gift that you've, you've provided for us. Pray that you would uh, soften us, Lord. Pray that you'd guide Tom to uh, give the words you'd have him to give. We thank you, Lord, for your promises that Christ has triumphed and we conquer through that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. It's uh, generally not too hard to settle on a theme when you preach on Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection is usually a pretty safe bet. This morning... I want to focus on one part of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplishes. And it's a part that uh, maybe doesn't always find its way into our, into our thinking. And that is the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the rest of creation rather than the impact directly on us. And I'm not neglecting the second to do the first, as you'll see. Romans 8 distinguishes between God's redemptive work in the end toward men and His redemptive work toward creation in order to make a very powerful connection between those two. And while that passage doesn't actually use the word resurrection, that's exactly what it's talking about. Before we look at how Jesus' resurrection impacts all the rest of creation, I want to consider briefly how it impacts us. And most of this you've heard before, which is perfectly fine. When I say how it impacts us, I mean us who have believed in Jesus Christ, who believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, in each individual case, my Savior, the one who has saved me from my sins. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection passage. In that passage, Paul tells us that everything about our salvation hinges on whether or not the body of Jesus Christ was physically raised from the grave. He tells us that if Jesus is not raised then our faith is in vain. It's pointless. And we're still in our sins. That means we still bear the guilt of our sins. That hasn't been addressed. So there's a whole lot at stake 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul quickly, of course, declares in that same passage, but now Jesus has been raised. Paul knew that was true because (laughs) Paul himself had undergone a radical transformation as a result of his own personal encounter with the resurrected, risen Christ. And if you look at what Paul says at the beginning of the book of Galatians, I have a very strong suspicion that there were many of those encounters during the time that uh, after Paul had been radically changed by Jesus. He says in Romans 1 verse 4 that the resurrection of Jesus proved that He, Jesus, is indeed the Son of God. If you look in Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, you'll see that the resurrection of Jesus confirmed that God was satisfied with His guilt offering on our behalf. In other words, the death of Christ was the sufficient payment for our sin. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. He's the first fruits and we are the latter fruits. The reason we know that we, will, we who believe in Him will be raised from the dead is because He was raised from the dead. One day soon, we who believe in Him will be transformed. As was pointed out in the worship, these, these mortal, dying, cursed bodies will be raised immortal and imperishable, made forever worthy to dwell in the presence of our holy God and glorious King. That transformation is already underway. Romans 6, Paul tells us that as believers we actually participate in the death of Christ not only when our old man is put away at the point of salvation, but we participate in His death every day as we put to death the sin that that we are leaving behind as His children. And we participate in His resurrection every day as we live our lives in the Holy Spirit in newness of life. So, the ramifications of the resurrection on us are huge. Paul said in Romans 8, just before the passage that Scott read, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive, present tense, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. His righteousness. See, we already have, we who believe in Him, already have resurrection life right now while we're eagerly waiting for the resurrection of these unredeemed bodies. I don't want to diminish any of those aspects of the impact of Christ's resurrection on us, but I want to look this morning at another aspect. For the rest of our time together, I want to focus our attention on how His resurrection affects everything else that God has made. And we'll see in the end that that the answer to that actually circles right back to how His resurrection impacts us. How did God's creation get the way it is now? (laughs) Let's start with the earth and our relationship to the earth. Why is life on this earth filled with so much futility? Why is everything that we do so difficult and prone to failure? Or at best prone to eventually fail. How did the the physical world become such an unfriendly place 
for human beings to live. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, germs of all kinds, mold, mildew, oxidation, freezing cold and blistering heat, poisonous plants, stinging insects, vicious animals. It's a great place, isn't it? God's clear answer is in verse 20, the passage Scott just read. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it. See, all this futility didn't just happen, and it didn't just slip through the cracks while God wasn't paying attention. God made it happen. How creation got cursed is kind of old news for most Christians. It's very important news, but it's the kind of thing that you learn in Sunday school or that you learn as you begin to examine the Scriptures. It's kind of the ABCs, right? God cursed creation. But here's a question that might not have such an obvious answer. Since it was man who sinned and not creation, why did God curse creation? To help us understand the Bible's answer to that, I want to first pose a hypothetical scenario. It's so hypothetical that it's utterly impossible for reasons that we'll see pretty soon, but I find it helpful to consider. What if God had not cursed creation? Let's go back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. Think about what life would have been like for us human beings Ever since then, if God had changed one very important thing about how He dealt with the sin of Adam, what if He had put mankind under the curse of death just as He actually did, but had not cursed the rest of creation? What if man had died spiritually on that day just as He actually did and from that day forward? But between that day and judgment day, Everything else in creation was left just as it was in the garden. Everything on earth continued to be perfectly submitted to man's dominion. Creation cooperated with our efforts to manage it instead of resisting those efforts. Every animal tamely submitted to man and got along just great with all the other animals. Everything that man planted grew and flourished. There was plenty of food, plenty of water, plenty of beautiful things to look at. Shelter from the elements wasn't even a consideration because there was nothing to be sheltered from. You could go camping and nothing would bite you. Nothing man made with his hands ever rusted or fell apart or got eaten by termites. Boats didn't have to be repainted. Roads never had to be repaired. Nobody got sick because things like bacteria and viruses and mold and mildew didn't exist. No natural disasters, no bad weather, no disorder, just life and abundance and beauty everywhere man looked except when he looked at another man. The only thing in all of God's creation that would have been different than how God designed it would have been man's heart toward God and toward other men. 
But even with sin in our hearts, in that, in that situation, we'd have so much less to argue and complain about, wouldn't we? So much less to drive a wedge between one person and another. Unlimited provision for everybody. No poverty. No money problems. None of the external limitations on physical provision that feed sins like greed and theft. Wouldn't that have been marvelous? Wouldn't that have been so much better than the way things are now? If you listen to most Christians, that kind of sounds like the way we see it. We're continually asking God to deliver us right now from the effects of the curse. We praise Him for His gracious and merciful hand in our lives when He heals us, not when He lets us be sick. We thank Him for His goodness toward us when the work that we do prospers, not when it falls apart in our hands. To a large extent, we measure God's grace and kindness toward us by how untouched we are by the curse. Don't we? If it's gracious of God to reduce the effects of the curse in my little corner of His creation here and now, wouldn't it have been a lot more gracious if He had just not cursed His creation at all? If He just let all of us live out our lives in an uncursed world until Judgment Day? The answer, my friends, is an emphatic no. It would not have been more gracious. It absolutely would not have been better. Let me present the same scenario from a slightly different angle and maybe you'll see what I mean. What if every human being since Adam was under the curse of eternal death, just as is actually the case? Every man spiritually dead, estranged from God now, and condemned to die physically one day and be separated from God forever. But what if the very first visible, tangible evidence that we were under the curse was our view of the gates of hell as we were being ushered through those very broad gates at the conclusion of this earthly life. Would that have been gracious? How many people throughout human history would have turned in repentance to God during their earthly lives? How many would have fled to Jesus to save them from the everlasting curse of their sin? And how many people would have spent their lives longing for the glorious return of Jesus to establish His kingdom in which there is no curse? Living their lives on this earth to honor that King and to invite others into His kingdom. How many? I think maybe none. Now let's go back to the original question. How did God, why did God, why did God curse creation instead of just man? Since it was man who sinned and not creation, why curse creation? If you go back before the curse and you look at God's revealed intention for mankind and all the other things He made, His answer starts to become obvious. Turn to the first page of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. 
Then God said, let us, this is our triune God speaking, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, by God's design, there is an unbreakable connection between man and the earth. There's an unbreakable connection between man and all of creation. As goes man, so goes creation. That's because God gave us an assignment when He created us. By the way, that's why man, why the hypothetical scenario that I gave you at the very beginning is preposterous. It's completely impossible. Because as goes man, so goes creation. You can't curse man without, God can't curse man without cursing creation. Not because he isn't able, but because that would violate his design. How many times have you heard someone say the world would be just fine if it weren't for the people? When I was a kid, uh, one of my, I was in the sci-fi movies, and one of my favorite movies was, uh, was The Day the Earth Stood Still with Michael Rennie and Patricia Neal. Still gets my vote for the, for best performance by a mute one-eyed robot. The, the premise of the movie was that a super race of alien robots sent one of their own to Earth along with his pet human, and they came with an ultimatum. If you human beings don't stop warring against each other, we're going to show you that we can destroy you. So they, they froze up, locked up every mechanical and electrical thing on earth for one hour of one day. In the very unfortunate remake of that movie that came out recently, the premise changed. See, the sin that the aliens came to remedy was not man fighting against man. It was man messing with Mother Earth. Talk about a sign of the times. Some people go so far these days as to say that the best thing that could happen to this earth is the extinction of mankind. We're what's wrong with the world. And you know what? Biblically speaking, they're right about who's at fault. But that's the sum total of where they're right. Taking man out of the picture cannot save the earth because by God's design there has always been an unbreakable connection between man and the earth. In the passage I just read from Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that when God created Adam and Eve, they weren't an add-on. They weren't the icing on the cake. They weren't even just the crowning achievement of God's creation. They were the overseers of His creation on His behalf. Agents of the living God. God created mankind with a very important assignment in mind. Human beings were to be His stewards, caretakers of His earth on His behalf in utter dependence upon Him in relationship with Him out of love for Him. 
Mankind's foremost assignment has always been and still is to do God's work, God's way, in God's creation. That's how we glorify God and the assignment has not changed. When God cursed man, He cursed the creation over which He had given man dominion because by God's design, as goes man, so goes creation. And if you trace, uh, so goes the earth. And if you trace that theme throughout Scripture, you find that as goes man, so, so goes the universe, the whole physical creation. The 18th century preacher George Whitfield wrote that when a dog barks at you, <laughs> he's saying to you, you have sinned against God and we take up our master's quarrel. Or to use Tim Keller's modernization of Whitfield, that dog is saying to you, you think we don't know whose fault this is? It's our fault, but friends, it's God's doing. It's God's doing. We didn't create the chaos and corruption and decay and disorder and death that pervades the whole created cosmos. God did. We were made by Him to be His agents acting on His behalf to manage and care for His creation. Not left to our own devices, but in utter dependence and in perfect relationship with Him. But friends, we chose our way over His. We pushed God aside and we did something unthinkable. We turned our relationship with creation upside down. Romans 1.25 says, We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. God is sovereign over us and He made us sovereign over His creation. And we turned all that upside down. We threw Him away and we worshiped the creature. And by the way, the creature that we worship most earnestly is ourselves. So God made His creation resistant to our dominion because we failed as His agents in exercising that dominion. The reason your job is difficult and frustrating the reason weeds grow in your garden, the reason you get sick, the reason your food gets moldy, the, the reason everything around you is so manifestly under the curse is precisely because you are under the curse as is every human being. As goes man, so goes the creation that God put under man's dominion. <laughs> But by God's amazing grace, that works in the other direction too. Beloved, our resurrection will be creation's resurrection. The day is coming when both man and all the rest of God's creation will be freed from the curse forever. And here's the, here's the grand connection between the two. Our freedom from the curse will be creation's freedom from the curse. Get my prop here. You guys, you guys know what this is, right? Famous blue bag. If the colors in my alley are indica any indication on Thursdays, I use more of those than any of my neighbors. It's, it's because I'm more OCD than they are. Blue bags are great, but they won't save the earth. You know what will? It's in that passage Scott read. 
verses 19 to 21, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, creation isn't eagerly waiting for its deliverance from the curse. Creation is eagerly waiting for our deliverance from the curse because by God's design, as goes man, so goes creation. All of creation is eagerly waiting for our resurrection day because just as Christ's resurrection guarantees resurrection life for us, our resurrection guarantees resurrection life for everything else that God made. When we finally enter fully into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, our freedom from the curse, our share in the glory of Jesus Christ will be creation's freedom and creation's glory. And here's where the grace of God in all of this becomes greater than we could ever have imagined. In the verses I just read again, Paul says creation was subjected to futility in hope. Wow. Creation was cursed in hope. How does that work? Well, what is hope in the Bible? Hope is looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise from the God who cannot lie. It's not a wish. It's a rock-solid certainty. So when God says creation was cursed in hope, He's saying creation was cursed with a view to the fulfillment of a promise. Is that how we normally view, how we, how we normally think about the curse on creation? By the way, we were cursed in hope too. One dear brother reminded us in our Wednesday discussion that as long as there have been philosophers, one of the most fundamental questions over which those philosophers have agonized is, why is there so much futility in the world? Many philosophers and many plain old people have found in that futility the justification for dismissing any idea of a gracious and loving God. They say, if there is a God and if He's a good God, He wouldn't have let this happen. But that assessment couldn't possibly be more wrong. God has given mankind the clearest of, clearest of answers to the question, why all this futility? And beloved, His answer shouts His goodness and grace and steadfast covenant love from every corner of His creation. God subjected His own creation to futility in hope. What hope? <laughs> the promise that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a promise. Not into its glory. Into our glory. And where does our glory come from? Christ's glory. 
I asked you to consider a scenario earlier in the message, the scenario of cursed sinners living in an uncursed creation. I said that would have been ungracious and unmerciful of God. The reality is that that curse is one of the most wonderfully gracious and merciful things that God has done for men. And the day that you and I start thinking of it that way is the day that our usefulness to God during our time on this earth goes up a thousand notches. When Adam, whose name means man, introduced sin into God's creation, God cursed that creation, but not, not to execute against man the just and fitting punishment for his sin. The just and fitting punishment for our sin is called hell. Eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power in a place of unending anguish. Nothing that human beings have ever experienced on this earth even approximates a just and fitting punishment for our rebellion against a holy God. A punishment we all deserve. See, God didn't curse His creation to satisfy His wrath against our sin. He cursed His Son to die on a cross forsaken by His Father to satisfy His wrath against our sin. And any person who rejects that payment will render payment to the Holy God for the rest of eternity. God didn't put His curse on creation to satisfy His wrath against our sin. Beloved, He subjected His creation to futility to put the reminder of the eternal curse of our sin in our face every day of our time on this earth in order to drive us back to Him. That's grace. That's grace. The grace that brought about God's curse on creation is the same grace that brought about His temporary curse on every human being. The reason your body is corrupt and dying is the same reason that everything around you is corrupt and dying. The reason your brain at age 60 isn't or won't be as quick and sharp as your brain at age 20 is because you're under the same curse that the fence in your backyard is under. Does it look the same way it did 40 years ago? Mine doesn't. At least not the part I haven't replaced. God made man's experience on the earth under the curse futile, even hopeless, so we would turn our eyes away from any created thing, especially ourselves, and we would find our hope in Him alone. That's grace. We're not supposed to find fulfillment in all this around us. And if you're a child of God, He will not allow you to find fulfillment in the things that He has made. Because He created you to find fulfillment only in Him. He created you to find real life only in Him. And He loves you too much to let you be satisfied with a crummy imitation of real life. 
See, that's all grace. We ask Him to stop doing it all the time. And it's all grace. Do we want grace or do we not? God put us and all of creation under a temporary curse in hope that through that temporary curse we would be redeemed from the permanent curse in hope that we would enter into everlasting resurrection life through Jesus, our amazing Savior. And our resurrection will bring resurrection life to all the rest of His creation so that both the people and the place will be made ready for our King when He comes back. When all the fruits of His resurrection have blossomed in His hand, we will finally and forever get to do what human beings were actually created to do. His work, His way, in His creation, in the astonishingly beautiful and magnificent company of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever. Through the curse, even because of the curse, freed from the curse forever. Is that not grace? That's amazing grace. Resurrection grace. So what? How does all that affect us now? Last week on Palm Sunday, I asked you to spend one hour between then and now. I'm not asking for a show of hands with other believers talking and praying about this question. Are you zealous for the salvation that God is working to accomplish in you right now, believer? The sanctification that is conforming you to Jesus Christ in your character and works day by day. I pray that the things that we've looked at this morning will encourage that zeal. That they'll build up that zeal. Our time as believers living in these unredeemed bodies on a cursed, unredeemed earth after we've already been made alive in the Spirit, that time is very, very short. It's like the blink of an eye from the perspective of eternity. But it's a very important blink. I'm convinced that you and I will be celebrating for the rest of eternity what God did in and through us during this moment in time that we have while we're here. And the very best of what He's doing in and through us now demands that we remain for a while under the temporary effects of the curse. And it's all grace. Are we willing to see it that way? Are we willing to realign our view of why there's futility in our lives, why there's opposition from the world, why we get sick, why we struggle, why because why in view of the cursed nature of all mankind we struggle so much in relationships with one and one another. Are we willing to see that temporary experience of the curse as all gracious? If we are that will ramp up our usefulness to God between now and our glorification day a thousand notches. In the final analysis, we can care for this earth, but we can't save it. It's going to be fried. 
burned to a crisp. All the battery acid, all the motor oil, all the pesticide, all the non-degradable, non-biodegradable plastic in all the landfills on every continent of the earth is going to be vaporized. And the whole universe is going to get a supreme makeover at the hands of God. Not an extreme makeover, a supreme makeover. See, to create subjects, citizens worthy of the King of Kings, God had to put us to death and give us new life in Jesus Christ. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And to create a place worthy of the King of Kings, He has to destroy all of this and then remake it. Breathing resurrection life into His creation. The life that Christ has given to men will be given to all creation. You want to save the earth? Here's the best thing you can do to save the earth. Hasten the day of the earth's redemption by saving men. Now, I, I know we don't save men. God does that. What I'm talking about is being really good instruments. Why is God delaying the final redemption? Because He's not finished saving men. So we know what we need to do. We want to move things along, right? It's the last little part here. Brothers and sisters, unbelievers are carefully watching how you live under the curse. Even if they don't yet know anything about how the curse happened or what, what it's all about. They're, they're watching how you live under the curse. They're watching how you love your spouse when you're not loved in return. They're watching how you respond when you're wronged by another person. Grievously wronged. Betrayed. They're watching how you respond to living in a cursed creation that opposes you and even threatens you. They don't care how you respond when everything's going your way. That doesn't impress them at all. They're watching to see how you respond when most everything about this life hurts a lot. Because that's their experience of life under the curse. Beloved, at the end of this amazing passage, Paul says hope that is seen is not hope. God has been burning that phrase into my heart for the last two years. Hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one hope for what he also sees? If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That's the life of the believer. It's a life of anticipation. It's a life of eager expectation. It's a life of looking forward, not looking around. Because you won't find fulfillment if you look around. Your fulfillment is in your relationship with the One who made you. All your fulfillment is in that relationship. Everything else is just an instrument. Even your spouse is just an instrument. Hope that is seen is not hope. So let's stop putting our hope in the things we can see and touch and lay hands on here and now. It's all a mirage. 
Let's stop acting like those things are worthy of our attention and affection because they simply are not. And let's stop trying to skip all the hard stuff. Do you get the fact that the greatest grace comes in the hard stuff, not the easy stuff? The greatest grace comes in the hard stuff. Let's ask God for the grace to handle the hard things in this life courageously and with unwavering trust in Him, fixing our hope always on the grace to be brought to us when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back to claim us and His creation for Himself forever. It's fine to ask Him for those special dispensations for healing and reconciliation and resolution of conflict. But not, not if we are not thanking Him for the saving grace that He showers upon us through illness and conflict and struggle. When we do that, when we praise Him in advance, when we thank Him in advance, acknowledging that all that He does is good and gracious, Beloved, that's when our usefulness to God during our time on this earth will ramp up a thousand notches. And our resurrection life will explode into resurrection life for people around us. That's how this works. Dear Father, we ask with feeble understanding, Lord, we ask that You would you would make that understanding clearer, more vivid, make our conviction more firm, cause us to understand, dear Father, what You have given us in Jesus Christ. Cause us to understand that You have been gracious to us and are gracious to us every moment of every single day, even as we experience the worst of life under the curse. Father, You have done amazing things for us all by the power of the resurrected Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Him from the dead. That power dwells within us. And through that power, You are able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Father, teach us to live that kind of life. Teach us to live lives that are bold and confident and courageous and to speak even as we experience great pain in this life to proclaim Your goodness including the goodness that comes only through that pain. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.